Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 250, 250, 250, Catherine Parr and Anne Askew. Here's an idea before we start, why not have a look at my sponsor OnlineGreatBooks.com. They run online courses on the great works that changed history. So every month you're sent a physical copy of the book you're due to study, starting with Homer, you'll progress through Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare and on through the moderns. You take part in video seminars. You get support all along the way. It does sound brilliant, doesn't it? A great way to understand the ideas that underpin European civilization. Plus, History of England listeners get a discount. Go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ref forward slash eng and enter the promotional code ENG to get 25% off your first three months and to support, well, you know, me. Last time, then, I introduced you to a few of the main characters of Henry VIII's Privy Council in 1544. We've got the old guard traditionalists, Norfolk and Wiley Winchester Stephen Stockfish, a.k.a. Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester. And coalescing around him, or them, are a few supporters who recognise that the Conservatives are in the ascendant now. So those might be Richard Rich, William Paget, Thomas Rottersley. These men come together to control today's world, but also tomorrow's world, the post-Henry world, whether to bring down the evangelical changes or ensure a more traditional aristocratic rule or simply for personal power and survival, or indeed all of the above. That's what they're going for. Opposing them as far as they can are Henry's gentleman servants in the privy chamber, such as Anthony Denny, whispering in the king's ear to save their evangelical colleagues from the vengeance of the council. And nor is the council itself completely devoid of evangelicals. The Earl of Hertford's personal stock had risen of late, 
and the long-serving John Dudley, the Viscount Lyle, another bureaucrat and military man, had also become one of the king's favourites, playing dice and gambling with the king. So, although exposed and threatened by the recent prebendary's plot, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, was no longer totally alone. Even more significantly, though less directly, was the arrival of the Queen, Catherine Parr. OK, so the Queen didn't sit on the council, but her influence, like that of Anne Boleyn, was felt everywhere. And Catherine's evangelical leanings were far clearer and more passionate than had Anne's been. English kings and queens were generally much separated, but Catherine and Henry had had an extended period of six months living in each other's pockets directly after their wedding. Catherine used some of this period to establish relationships with her stepchildren. Mary was now in her mid-twenties, Elizabeth was ten, and Edward VI was a nipper. Uh, That's eight years old. Chapuis crowed that Catherine's relationship with Mary seemed particularly strong rather than with Anne Boleyn's daughter, Elizabeth. And Catherine's success in establishing a relationship with Mary, whose religious views are very different from her own, was a sign of Catherine's talents. She was good at influencing, at bringing people together, at establishing bonds. And it was a talent that would not only influence policy, but would save her life. It seems equally clear that Catherine did indeed work hard at getting on with the stepchildren, though you have to wonder if the stepchildren by this stage were getting a bit confused about who was who. In the history cycle of revisionism and counter-revisionism, it's been suggested that the image of Catherine's adoring stepchildren and happy household gathered around the Tudor fire like a 1950s Christmas advert or a washing liquid commercial has been hideously exaggerated. And it's tricky. Because Tudor society was that most marvellous of things, a gerontocracy, where the old folks were treated with exaggerated respect and ruled the roost with a firm hand. Whoa, let's hear it for a gerontocracy. So, when Elizabeth, who was ten years old, remember, when she wrote, I am not only bound to serve you, but also to revere you with filial love. I don't think you can automatically take it as genuine any more than that Edward's letter, where he wrote... I've received so many benefits from you that my mind can hardly grasp them. Edward was eight years old. These are as likely to be formulaic as much as anything. However, they might be evidence of affection, and there are a couple of wispy straws in the wind that suggest they could be. Catherine did have a personal touch, and she seems to have taken an interest in them, and it seems likely children so young would have responded. At Christmas of 1544, for example, she had matching clothes made for herself, Princess Mary and Elizabeth and Prince Edward, all in cloth of silver, which is a nice touch I might suggest to my own kiddiewinks next Christmas. She took a personal interest in their schooling. There's a frequently quoted example of Elizabeth's own ability to influence and ingratiate with a letter for her to Catherine in Italian, fulsome, with thanks and praise for her stepmother. Catherine may well have chosen Edward's tutor personally. So, at very least, she made the effort. She didn't ignore them, and there's no evidence other than that they were all three duly grateful. Catherine may also have influenced the new succession. Edward, of course, was first in line, and then heirs, if there were any, between Catherine and Henry. But then, if all else failed, the succession now went to Mary and then Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth remained officially bastardised, but the Succession Act provided for them to become Queen should the worst happen. Some suggest that this was Catherine's influence with the King at work. 
It's also clear that Catherine and Henry had established a trust between them. And so, during the war with France between July and September 1544, Catherine was made regent, as had Catherine of Aragon been all those years ago. She managed the government with a five-man council. She was firm, efficient, decisive, very much in control. Her letters also show a slightly different attitude to the first Queen Catherine. She's less bloodthirsty more eager to promote a sense of English destiny, less hectoring, because it's worth remembering the difference in their backgrounds. Catherine of Aragon was born to rule, a proud Spanish princess from one of Europe's leading dynasties. Catherine Parr was, well, not. She was from the backwards, if the good people of Lincolnshire will forgive me for saying so. But this is a person who, despite that lack of experience and upbringing, knew how to lead very effectively, and knew how to lead with a light touch. I read that she chose as her motto, to be useful in all I do, which is an unassuming kind of motto, is it not? My life's mission is to be handy to have around, sort of thing. Nice. But it was in matters of religion that Catherine was to have the most influence, and she exercised her influence through a culture she established in her household and by the influence she could exercise with the king. She would walk on occasion very close to the line and it would come close to changing that rhyme we used divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived could have been divorced, beheaded, beheaded instead. So whether or not you think Catherine came early or late to Protestantism to Protestantism, she certainly came. Catherine had intellectual and literary talents as well as interpersonal skills. She's the first queen to be published, I think it's true to say, and it's not until Victoria that we get another one. In May 1545, she published Prayers or Meditations, which was an instant success and went into five printings by 1548. More importantly, to understand her mind and beliefs, was a book published only after Henry's death called The Lamentation of a Sinner, a description of her search for religious truth and a clearly Protestant piece of work. Catherine created an atmosphere at court which made it acceptable to hold Protestant views. You had to be careful. You could not be too open about it all or too radical. The conservative heretic hunters were on the prowl. Henry himself was on the prowl to a degree. But there was an undercurrent of acceptability and even rebellion against traditional practice, though that's probably far too strong a word. She transformed her own household into a strongly evangelical one. The head of her household, Anne Herbert, her sister and people close to her, such as the Countess of Hertford, Lady Denny, Lady Hobby, Lady Lane and Lady Tywit, were all evangelicals. She was close to Catherine Willoughby, the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, who was very outspoken in her evangelical views, who was strongly opposed to Gardiner. These women helped protect and advance evangelical views through their patronage, through culture and through example. Every day, in the afternoon, for the space of an hour, One of her chaplains in her privy chamber made some collation to her and to her ladies and gentlewomen of the privy chamber, or others that were disposed to hear. Her influence would also bear fruit in the longer term. During her regency, she brought Elizabeth to court, where Elizabeth would have seen her in a position of authority and power. Elizabeth joined Catherine's religious debates and joined in the literary circle that Catherine also loved. Catherine had Elizabeth translate Erasmus and Elizabeth would translate Catherine's own work. It's a bit of a leap, 
But it would not seem entirely fanciful that these things influenced Elizabeth's feelings about religion, and Elizabeth's feelings about religion would be very significant at some point in the future. As Catherine's fervour and influence grew, she also had a hack at Henry VIII to persuade him to follow a more evangelical line. Some of this was directly political. She seems at least on one occasion, for example, directly to have advocated alliance with the Protestant German princes. She also got into the habit of directly discussing and disputing religious matters with Henry, but this was very probably a mistake. Just to hammer another nail into the coffin of his reputation, Henry seems to have had a, shall we say, unreconstructed attitude about such debates with his wife. After one such debate, he would vent to Gardiner. A good hearing it is when women become such clerks, and a thing much to my comfort to come into mine old age to be taught by my wife. Henry was deploying early modern irony, of course. He really didn't really think it was much to his comfort at all, and Wiley Winchester would have picked up his ears and maybe well have stroked his chin thoughtfully, and perhaps there was even an evil chuckle around. Because there is no firmer evidence that Catherine was indeed influential, that Catherine was inspiring an evangelical comeback, than that the Conservatives has started to plot to bring her down. What I have learned is that if at the Tudor court someone wanted to have you executed, you should not be disheartened. It was in fact the highest possible compliment. Catherine had just made the grade. She could now wear the worth-executing badge on her lapel with pride. Gardner's slightly battered-looking political antennae would have been excited partly because of a speech Henry gave on Christmas Eve, 1545. So, you know I keep saying it, Henry was in his own time generally admired and revered. And you keep thinking, come on, seriously, was he really? Well, Christmas 45 was one of the occasions when Henry demonstrated that intensely Tudor talent for self-promotion and wowing a crowd. Henry came to Parliament in all his glory to speak to his troops. Why, you might ask, had Henry been moved to shift his bulk Parliament wards? Well, one was that Parliament had proved unusually toothy about the final part of the Reformation dividend, the abolition of the chantres, those colleges of priests set up to pray for the souls of the departed dead. Getting the act through Parliament had been surprisingly tough. But primarily Henry had come because he was still deeply worried about the discord in his kingdom, the very public and very private debates about religion. This is a tricky one to understand, because the Conservatives were still out there heretic hunting, and as we'll hear, Henry, on the other hand, was considering more doctrinal changes. So you might say, well, if you're worried about discord, stop making changes, stop burning people. But in Henry's mind, he was simply doing his job. His job, as supreme head of the church, was to think deeply about practice and doctrine. His job as king was to look after the religious health of his family, of his subjects. And there's no doubt that Henry did think deeply and tried to steer a middle way, to find Aristotle's golden mean. His problem was that it seems that some of his subjects, actually, well, a lot of his subjects, insisted on having a view of their own rather than doing what they were told. He, Henry, was in charge. Their job was to believe what he told them to believe. Now, maybe none of this makes us love Henry anymore, but hey, this is 1545, not 2018. So, the king turned up in Parliament on Christmas Eve, 1545, to put matters straight, to bring harmony where there was discord, to bring fraternal love to his people. 
His people stood in awe in front of him as he spoke, and he spoke well. He spoke with passion, he spoke with authority, he spoke persuasively, and he spoke as though he was speaking to each and every one there individually. He cried out against the preachers who argued against each other's opinions, throwing insults at each other. All these were, he said, names devised by the devil. And there was more. How unreverently that most precious jewel, the word of God, is disputed, rhymed, sung and jangled in every alehouse and tavern. Of this I am sure, that charity was never so faint amongst you, and virtuous and godly living was never less used. Nor was God himself among Christians ever less reverenced, honoured or served. Burn. Sorrowfully, Henry spread the blame equally, accusing neither one side nor t'other. No one side was wholly to blame. The trouble was, he explained, that some be too stiff in their old mumpsimus, other be too busy and curious in their new sumptimus. Now, at this point, you, of course, think the old guy has really lost it. Mumpsimus, sumpsimus, what is he on about? Well, I can reveal to you, what you're looking at here, gentle listeners, is a sort of Tudor literary joke, a tale told by Erasmus at his most waggish, of a priest corrected in his Latin when he wrote Mumpsimus rather than the correct Sumpsimus. When corrected, the priest grumpily exclaimed, I will not change my old Mumpsimus for your new Sumpsimus. I am also pleased to announce that the word Mumpsimus became then accepted as the word for a misguided stick in the mud who will not change their view in the face of clear evidence of the need for reform. You may be able to think of such people like that that you know, in which case I must send you away with a mission, should you choose to accept it. A mission to keep the word Mumpsimus alive and relevant in the modern world, and say, you old Mumpsimus, to somebody. Or whatever. Anyway, I digress. Back to the story. Anyway, we're back at Parliament. Henry was getting into his stride now. And everybody had that uncomfortable, lumpy feeling in their throats, like when Elliot took to the skies in E.T. or when Johnny Wilkinson popped one over in extra time in 2003. What was needed was leadership. Bishops and clergy must mend their divisions and give example to the rest. And the whole nation must follow the lead of their king. They must all travel with him. By now there was no mistaking it. Henry was blubbing. There were tears on his cheeks. Seriously embarrassing, you might think, but I'm glad to say that the stiff upper lip had yet to be invented in England. We don't get that until the 19th century, though I'm sure you will be amused and most diverted to know that it is a phrase that appears to have been invented in America, where it was first written down in 1815 and took until 1844 to arrive on the shores of Blighty. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Who knew? Anyway, Henry was blubbing, which was just fine, because his audience was in floods as well. Not a dry eye in the house, ladies and gentlemen, not a dry eye in the house. It was a bravura performance. So, going back to Catherine, to Gardner, and to the Conservatives. The poor old Conservatives have been through disappointing times recently. 
Since their coup against Cranmer had crashed and burned, they'd been unable to expose, forcibly convert, or even burn any heretical evangelicals. The king had even been considering some ideas from Cranmer about further evangelical changes in doctrine and practice. Despite their domination of the council, things were not looking good for the Conservatives. But at the start of 1546, the time was right. Gardner had just returned from France, and he played the foreign policy card for all it was worth. Negotiations were at a delicate point. There must be no rocking the boat with anything that looked like evangelical change. So, those new ideas Henry had agreed with Cranmer were hurriedly shelved. Lyle and Hartford, the most powerful evangelical lords on the Privy Council, were occupied in France and would be until late summer. It was time to go on the offensive for the Conservatives, and they would be as offensive as possible to the offending evangelicals. The tactics would be the same as the last few times we've been around this particular mulberry bush, the tactic that had worked so well to discredit Cromwell and only just failed to destroy Cranmer. Root out heretics, expose them, and get them to either publicly recant or burn them without mercy, but also to use lesser heretics to bring down the greater, more influential evangelicals. And we have an evangelical queen here. She was in serious danger of derailing the conservative train, bending the royal earlobes with her religious disputations, and here we have a king who just wants everyone to do as he says and stop arguing about it. Who has gone on record? Well, at least gone on record to Gardner that he's finding the lecturing a bit irritating. Catherine would be the ultimate target. The stakes were high, it was increasingly clear that the king could not last much longer, and what came after would be critical. If the Queen and the Evangelicals could be discredited now, if a feeling of panic about discord in the realm could be magnified, Henry might turn finally back to the true religion and put a Regency Council with Norfolk at its head in his will. The Conservatives could all live happily ever after, hurrah for the true religion. But to bring Catherine down, a way was needed into the Queen's household. The Fab Four, Rottersley, Rich, Paget, Gardiner, were confident that there was plenty of evidence in there, in the household, to convict the Queen. Heretical books kept locked away in chests in her wardrobe. But one does not just walk into Mordor, or indeed, into the Queen's household. They needed an excuse, evidence, an accusation. Hence, those lesser heretics. At the same time, most incredibly remarkably, a plan was hatched to do the unthinkable, engineer a return to the papal bosom. That really would be the big one. Not the papal bosom, you understand, which in Pope Paul III's case looks relatively scrawny, but a reconciliation with said bosom, a return of the papal supremacy. Even more remarkably, the king was prepared to listen to the idea, and work began to bring a papal envoy over to England. In April 1546, one Dr Edward Crome was arrested and interrogated by the Privy Council, and twice forced to recant his evangelical views. Not only was his humiliation secured, but his interrogators got some names from him, and one of those was a man called George Blagg. Now, George was an esquire of the body to the king, and a frequent companion of the king's in his privy chambers. George was an evangelically-minded young man, and the king liked him. He called George his pig. How George must have laughed! but Rottersley had contacts in Blagg's country back home, two local dignitaries with rather dodgy personal histories out of the local political bully and a cattle rustler. 
And so on the 9th of May, suddenly, George Blagg found himself accused of denying the efficacy of the Mass. And within three days, he'd been in court, cried out, I never did, I've been framed, and been found guilty of heresy and condemned to burn. It was frighteningly quick. But the Privy Chamber acted. They contacted John Russell, the Lord Privy Seal, who rushed to the King. Henry was horrified at the idea, and a pardon was issued. When Blagg appeared back at court, he could scarcely contain his relief, and Henry welcomed him heartily. Ah, my pig! If your majesty had not been better to me than your bishops were, your pig had been roasted ere this time. Others, however, were not so lucky. Latimer was interrogated. His buddy, Nicholas Shackton, was interrogated and broken and forced to recant. Nicholas Shackton, you might remember, was one of Anne Boleyn's bishops. A man called Roland Taylor also had to recant. On the 11th of May, John Lascelles was arrested, the very same man who'd taken his sister Mary's concerns about Catherine Howard to Cranmer back in 1541. John Lascelles now was convicted. He refused to recant his evangelical views. He was condemned to the fires and imprisoned. Roger Clark, Nicholas Bellinian, John Adams, Oliver Richardine, John Hemley, John Hadlam and others whose names do not survive were convicted and condemned to burn, which they all did, many in July 1546. The fires of Smithfield burned brightly. Plus, the Conservatives even managed to get a law passed against evangelical texts. As he shaved in the morning, Gardner may well have thought of Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning! And all that sort of thing. By the way, without wanting to break up the narrative, I also learned that the clerics were traditionally clean-shaven around Europe. Hence, the traditional picture of Cranmer is of a clean-shaven man. However, in Europe, evangelical clerics like Luther had taken to wearing beards as a mark of their protest, and Cranmer would do the same. Hence, I've tended to show him in pictures on the website in his bearded form. Just a little wrinkle for you. And also, I'm suddenly worried that I'm presenting Gardner as an insouciant lover of violence. I have no doubt that Gardner took none of these actions lightly and saw them as no less than his Christian duty. But the result was, without doubt, fear, suspicion and death. But, so far, despite deep satisfaction at the way things were going, no little fishy had yet nibbled at the bait to allow him to get at Queen Catherine, and her bending of the king's ear continued. Now, let me take you away from all of this to the glory that is Grimsby. I promise to make this irrelevant eventually. Near glorious Grimsby lived a knight called William Askew, who was married to Elizabeth Rotsley, no relation to Thomas, by the way. William and Elizabeth were the proud parents of five, two boys and three girls. In about 1521, they christened their second girl, Anne. There was great excitement when Anne's elder sister Martha was betrothed to be married to one Master Kime of a village of Friskney, also in Lincolnshire, and mercifully close to Skegness. But in 1536, disaster struck and little Martha died. Said William and Elizabeth to Master Kime, We have another daughter. Her name is Anne. Maybe you'd like to marry her instead. And so the arrangements were made. Anne, however, was not happy. But William and Elizabeth appear to have been from the less consensual side of the parental tracks, and Anne, though she would prove to have a stubborn and determined side to her character later, combined with the most remarkable courage, 
was also a dutiful daughter, and so she bowed to the demands of her parents, and she went, and she did her duty, and she and Master Kaim had two children together. But all was not well in their household. Anne had been relatively well educated, could certainly read, and so she read, and she read the Bible. And what she read there turned her mind to the teachings of the evangelicals. It seems that she was not of the shy and retiring type, because she seems to have shared her views and talked to her neighbours and her husband about it all. Neither her neighbours nor her husband were particularly happy with her talk. This is Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire, then as now, is a conservative sort of place and would, of course, be at the centre of the pilgrimage of grace. There were grumbles, mutterings, indeed, open hostility on occasion. And when Anne proposed to go to the big smoke, the glittering cosmopolis that was Lincoln, they made their views known, and they, they made their outrage known to the bishop and his staff at Lincoln that an evangelical was heading their way. The bishop at Lincoln was one John Langland. He was a fierce conservative and an enemy of evangelicals. As Anne herself would write, she was warned. For my friends told me, if I did come to Lincoln... The priests would assault me and put me to great trouble, as thereof they had made their boast. Anne's stubborn streak was now revealed in all its glory. She would not be denied. And so she took herself off to the cathedral city to show that she wasn't intimidated, she would not be cowed, and to see what substance this great trouble might have. There in the cathedral she quietly read their Bible which is fair enough, except, of course, the Act in Advancement of Religion in 1543 had laid down that women should only read the Bible in private and was, in all probability, goading the establishment and goading the male establishment to boot. The establishment didn't fancy it, to be honest, and generally speaking, they whistled nonchalantly, put their hands in their pocket, did their best to look unconcerned and all that sort of thing and avoided trouble, as the English liked to do, even in a queuing situation. They did the English hanging around, tutting thing, without actually saying anything. Finally, one priest had a bit of a go, and later claimed to have been so unimpressed that she couldn't remember what he even said. Just a little byword here again. When the story was done in the following reign, an account of the events of Anne's life would be published. She wrote down everything that happened to her, and two editions of her life were published, one edited by one John Bale and one by our very own John Fox. Bishop Gardner was furious about these things being published and he demanded that they be repressed. He claimed they misreported events. He also wrote, For if it be persuaded the understanding of God's law to be at large in women and children, whereby they may have the rule of that, then God's law must be the rule of all. Is not hereby the rule of all brought into their hands? It's a rather fascinating statement, isn't it? It's a reminder of just how men viewed women's roles and capabilities, particularly, of course, the religious. I don't accuse Gardner specifically of being exceptional in any way here. Anne's own editor, John Bale, jumps through hoops to take agency away from Anne, presenting her as simply a weak tool of God's work. Anne was presented as meek, pious, obedient, and to do this, he messed a lot with Anne's original text. Fortunately, to do him justice, John Fox was much happier to tell her story fully and from her point of view. And as ever, Fox was largely rigorous in his use of the texts. And so historians have pointed out that Anne that emerges from Fox's text is quite different to the one that emerges from John Bale's. She's subversive of male authority. She's brave, witty and intelligent. Also, 
Gardner's quote is not just about a fear of empowering women, it also speaks of a fear of political empowerment. Gardner's horror comes down to us through the centuries, and I suspect he used this approach because it would strike a greater, deeper chord in his listeners than a mere objection to glorifying an evangelical. Anyway, there you go. Back at home then, Master Keim was equally livid about Anne's trip to Lincoln and her evangelicalism. No doubt he had tried to get Anne to stop talking about her beliefs, stop showing an independent view different to his own. Now he decided he'd had enough and he threw her out. Anne responded by demanding a divorce. Of her two children, by the way, there is no sign, so it may be that they died in infancy. Now Anne had a snowball's chance in hell of gaining a divorce from the Bishop of Lincoln and so she took herself off to London, to the Court of Chancery, where she might have a better chance. Because Anne Askew was a well-connected noblewoman. Her brother Edward was cup-bearer to the king, and her half-brother Christopher had been a gentleman of the Privy Chamber. Edward had served Archbishop Cranmer, and critically Anne's sister Jane was married to George St. Paul, a lawyer in the service of the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk, our Catherine Willoughby of Dog Gardener fame, member of the Queen's household. This connection to the Queen's household might well have seemed like good news to Anne at this point. She might have been less enthusiastic had she known where that would lead. To be fair and even-handed, there is an alternative view as to why Anne left her husband and why she went to London. These are the words of Robert Persons, a Catholic recusant born in 1546 who died in Rome in 1610. She left, wrote Persons, to get up and down the country a gospeling and gossiping where she might and ought not, and this for diverse years before her imprisonment, but especially she delighted to be in London, near the court. I put that out there for your consideration, though it is not clear to what documents or testimonies persons had access to frame this different narrative. But Anne attracted attention in London, and it was probably 1545 when she first got into trouble and she was hauled in front of the Bishop of London, Edmund Bonner, and she was interrogated. Eventually, Bonner went away and wrote a document, a confession of faith, and demanded that she agree to it. Evangelicals and Lollards over the years had worked out ways to walk the line between submission and denial. You might note that there was no right to remain silent, by the way, under law in 1545. Anne was clearly well aware of the law, and used the law to answer as safely as she could, without imperilling her immortal soul. I believe so much thereof as the Holy Scripture doth agree to, she said. But Bonner wouldn't let her off the hook that easily, and he demanded that she sign the confession. Anne signed, but insisted on adding her own addenda. I, Anne Askew, do believe all manner of things contained in the faith of the Catholic Church. This sounds innocuous enough, but Bonner was furious. She distanced herself from the Roman Church and claimed the proper Catholic Church was of her own, the Reformers' Church. But for now, Anne was released as her family and connections fought her cause and of course as a woman she might not be considered an equal but that meant at the time, like this, her head would be below the parapet. There is no cloud without its silvery lining, as it were. Equally, there is no silvery lining without its cloud and by June 1545, Anne Askew was arraigned again before a jury for denying the mass. But no witness came forward, and so the jury released her. Now, 
that might have been the end of the matter. The law of silvery linings appeared to have dictated that as a woman, Anne was not to be taken seriously and her social status also protected her from harm. It's a rather galling way to avoid being burnt if you're a fiery evangelical that nobody will take you seriously, but there it is. For the best part of a year, Anne remained at large, worshipping as she would. But unfortunately, someone noticed Anne. And someone noticed she might very well be the person the Conservatives needed, the key to unlock the casket that held Queen Catherine's heretical writings. They noticed her connections to court and to the Queen's household. To save her life, she might be able to accuse someone close to the Queen. She might even be able to incriminate the Queen herself. In May 1546, Thomas Kime received a command from the very top, from the Privy Council. Thomas Kime was to attend the King's Council at Greenwich on the 19th of June 1546, together with his wife Anne, to answer various charges of religious deviancy. Her interrogators would reflect just how important Anne was now considered to be. The Chancellor, Thomas Rottersley, Stephen Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, Don Dudley, Viscount Lyle, William Parr, Earl of Essex, and William Paget, the King's Principal Secretary. We will find out what happens to Master Kime and Anne Askew next time. Next time will, however, be in two weeks' time. Two weeks, because next week we have the first of a series of episodes from the Roman Baths in Bath, would you believe? What can I say? With summer coming up and people thinking of holidays and days out and all that sort of thing, the Roman Bath Museum in Glorious Bath invited me down to have a look round the museum, talk to their experts, and produce some episodes about the town and the Roman precinct, so that you can then consider going to Bath and the museum. I had to tell you, I had a fantastic time. And I've done three episodes, which I'll then run next week, in July, and then in August. The first one next week are interviews about a brief history of Bath, astounding Georgian Bath, how the Roman baths were rediscovered, why Queen Victoria pulled the blinds of her train down when she passed the town, and all of that. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did making it. It was great. Okay, thanks to all of you for listening, for all your comments on iTunes, the website, Facebook and all that. Having your comments is as important now as it was seven years ago, so keep them coming. And I'll see you all next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.